right, good afternoon. Um, thank you for coming. This is the China Economy Seminar um, for the China Fair, for the Fairbank Center for Chinese Studies. Um, I am Meg Rithmeyer. I'm a professor at the Business School, and I organize the seminar. And before I introduce our speaker for today, Derek Scissors from the American Enterprise Institute, let me just advertise um, future meetings of this seminar. There are two um, th that are, will happen over the course of the semester. On April 4th, we have Adam Siegel from the Council of Foreign Relations, who will be talking about um, China's technology policy. Um, and, you know, not timely at all, not important. Um, and then on April 22nd, Terry Sickler, who's a, um, an economist and a, um, a visiting fellow at the center for this semester, um, will speak up probably on inequality in China. So please um, do attend those two seminars as well. Um, so it's our great pleasure today uh, to have Derek Scissors um, all the way from DC. And it seems like it would be close, but in fact, it's not close. Um, he nearly did not make it today, only through the heroic efforts of our staff um, is he able to be here today um, and himself. So thank you for making your flight um, and showing up. Um, so Derek is a resident fellow, a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, and he runs um, a resource that many of you have likely used or seen, even if you haven't used it directly, which is a China investment tracker, which he started doing in 2005, so before it became um, fancy and, and popular for everyone to do that. He has an intimate knowledge of Chinese, um, Chinese corporates as well as um, the Chinese government has been working on these issues for decades. Um, he's an economist by training. He is the chief economist for something called the China Beige Book, which is a firm um, survey in China, um, and knows quite a bit both about China, the, the macroeconomic picture in China, as well as Chinese overseas investment, as well as recent trade things. He's going to present today on overseas investments, chiefly from um, Chinese state-owned enterprises and research done on that. But it's fair game to ask him questions also about the China macro picture and about um, the trade relationship um, with the United States um, at the end of the talk. So with that, Derek, thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Meg. It was a little bit of an adventure. Um, so hopefully I will at least have some energy left after this morning's fake out. Um, American Airlines fake out, not a Harvard fake out. So the, the tracker, uh, tracker starts with the modern history, which is 12, well, no, it's, what am I saying? It's now 14 years old, of <clears throat> Chinese outward investment, which is China Academy of Sciences acquisition of, of IBM's personal computer unit through its then, uh, then, at the time, then labeled subsidiary legend, which has morphed into Lenovo, the legend still exists. Um, that closed in early 2005. 2005 also represents uh, a quintupling of China's official outward direct investment over 2004. So you really never got above $2 billion in China's official uh, outward direct investment figure until 2005, and in 2005 it's about $12 billion. Um, so that's why Mark 2005 is the start of Chinese outward investment. Uh, it also start for natural reasons. It became much more interesting for someone like me who was then in the private sector to follow it. The other thing that happened in 2005, marking it, marking it as a breaking point, is that uh, CNUC, China National Offshore Oil, made an $18 billion bid for Unical, an American oil company. The bid was agreed upon by the two companies, and basically Congress did very effectively what it does often very effectively, which is said, are you sure you want to do that? We're not going to stop you. We're just going to treat you really badly after the merger, and it's just not going to be good for you. You're not going to like it. Um, 
And so the merger was blocked. And you know, I, I just said we had a quintupling of Chinese investment to 12 billion in 2005. The merger was worth 18 billion. So the one transaction that was blocked was worth 50% more than by far the record high of Chinese investment. And you can see to uh, annual Chinese investment to that date. You can see that 2005 is a breaking point, both in the successes and in the failures. Uh, and that's why the tracker starts in 2005. Well, that's the intellectual reason the tracker starts in 2005. The practical reason the tracker starts in 2005 is that at that point, Chinese inbound, in, inbound investment into China post-WTO was boring, and everyone was saying the same thing, and I needed to keep my clients, so I needed to say something different. And I came up with something, let's talk about outbound Chinese investment, which no one else was talking about at the time. Um, all right. I, I said both of those things, uh, both the... the CAS, Chinese Academy of Sciences acquisition of Lenovo, uh, sorry, of IBM through Legend slash Lenovo, and the Scenic Unical deal, they're both U.S. And in fact, the initial burst of Chinese interest in outward investment was in the U.S., but uh, it, fall, it fails pretty quickly, um, and the attention shifts to Australia. So just one more remark about 2005. 2005, the story starts, the very beginning of Chinese uh, outward direct investment as a, as a global uh, phenomenon uh, starts in the U.S., but it moves very quickly uh, away from the U.S. Um, so I don't want you to think that 2005 was just an American event. There was, a, there was actual globalization for the first time of Chinese corporates, not just in the United States. Um, at the time, and this is why the tracker was created, so this is motivation. I'll get to the sourcing soon. That's the most interesting thing. At the time, the biggest problem with official figures, and it's hard to believe, but they didn't show up until nine months later, like a baby. Um, the year would end December 2005, and the official data would show up in September 2006 because it wasn't important to China. They didn't know how to track it. They weren't asking direct survey questions. They would backtrack the survey from the Ministry of Commerce. Um, so, you know, we provided information prior to that, so we beat them to the punch. Um, the other, another problem that's still occurring today and arguably is the largest today, which is China, and all of you who follow Chinese data would be aware of this, China treats Hong Kong by WTO rule as an external customs port. So China exports a great deal to Hong Kong. The U.S. has its own sort of true volume of, of imports from the Chinese mainland, but China gives a smaller volume because it counts some of its exports as being to Hong Kong. The same thing is true with investment. 60% of China's total outward investment is said by the Ministry of Commerce to be in Hong Kong. That's not true, uh, but that is how it is listed. It is listed as stock in Hong Kong. The money, of course, passes through Hong Kong onto the final destination. Otherwise, Hong Kong would be by far the richest city in the world. Um, and it's rich, but it's not that rich. So what you have from China, most official bilateral figures are too low. Some of them are grossly too low. Um, because they, the final investment is not tracked to its, its true destination. It stopped in Hong Kong, whereupon the Ministry of Commerce, the mainland Ministry of Commerce says, it's not our problem anymore. Um, I'll brag for a second. Uh, there are a lot of prop flaws in the data set. It's hard to, to collect original data on a large scale for 14 years and counting. And I'd be happy to talk about those flaws. We have not only I, I, the best bilateral figures is kind of the wrong way to put it, because they're not that good. We have the only bilateral figures that make sense on a global basis. There are people who have regional bilateral figures. Some of them are okay. They don't really help you with global context. China's numbers are wrong. And they're not, it's not arguably wrong. The Ministry of Commerce, I have officials from the Ministry of Commerce who have called me for years talking about our bilateral figures versus theirs because they know theirs are incorrect. And they're deliberately incorrect. 
China deliberately treats Hong Kong as an external customs port. It deliberately does not track the investment through Hong Kong, which means all investment that passes through Chinese subsidiaries in Hong Kong is not tracked to its final destination. So if you want bilateral figures, not that I would say ours are perfect, they're not. You cannot use the official figures. Uh, on a global level, you have to use us. Um, another fix, which was uh, you know, conducted by me personally in early 2005, not with the best result. China continues to this day, and certainly did for, for many years, to say the top sector recipient of Chinese money is leasing and business services. You'll be forgiven if you don't know exactly what that means. And what it means is leasing energy fields. Chinese don't consider that. They don't, they don't have an energy listing. They have a mining listing. They don't have an energy sector listing. And the reason they put leasing and business services is the beginning of Chinese investment for years. It was all energy, and they didn't want to report that. So we have a different set of sectors. Unfortunately, I just made them up myself and didn't follow any uh, UN, US, whomever, OECD standard. So you know, we identify energy as by far the leading source or recipient of Chinese investment because it is, which is better than saying it's leasing and business services. But we have a non-standard set of sectors, which sometimes causes problems in use. And if you want to use the data and you want to understand what the sectors are, ask me. Um, but it's still better than leasing and business services, which is kind of meaningless. Limitations on the tracker, $95 million transaction and up. It is not small transactions. That gives us tractability. Um, that, that will turn out to be important in the sourcing. If you are in, if you're looking at subsectors, if you're looking at certain small economies, we will miss transactions in those economies because they're too small for us. So if you're very interested in West Africa, we may show no Chinese investment there or no Chinese investment there for a number of years just because the transactions don't rise to that level. It is not to say when we show zero, it means we don't record the transaction. It doesn't mean that there is zero Chinese investment in the country. Um, the split. So the, if you download the Excel file, and I, I have to say the Excel file is free. So whatever you think of my work, it's free. You get what you pay for. Um, if you download the Excel file, uh, you'll get tab one is investment, which is normally what we think about investment, and it involves ownership. So our definition of investment is if you own, if there's ownership involved, we count it. So if you're just receiving returns from a bond, we don't count it. If you just loaned money with no ownership, we don't count it. Tab two is construction, and this construction tab, I'll, I'll, I'll explain more in a second uh, about why it was created. But the construction tab is basically services performed in the host country. So there's no ownership, but the services have to be performed locally. It's not just export of services. And I'll, again, why I did that, I will, I will talk about in a second. And then there's a third tab, which is called troubled transactions. And you already had one motivation for troubled, which is the Chinese tried to go from $2 billion worth of outward investment in 2004 to $30 billion of outward investment in 2005, but $18 billion of that got blocked. And it got blocked in a not transparent, somewhat disorganized fashion. So arguably, the launch of Chinese outward investment in the world, which we now take for granted as a very big deal, was started with a failure. Regulatory intervention, eh, regulatory is not the right word. It's just straight out political intervention by the United States. So with that as motivation, um, there were some early Chinese problems in Iran. There have been plenty of other issues later. There's a trouble transaction tab. Um, Troubled is something of an art form. It's basically 
the two parties make an agreement, so it is not a failed negotiation. It's not, I made a bid, it wasn't high enough, we tried to form a joint venture, we couldn't come to an agreement, and then the problem set in after the parties involved, the commercial parties involved, set an agreement. So the classic example, and, and I encourage all of you, we're talking about cases, this is not a dissertation, although I suppose it could turn into one, but it's, it's incredibly amusing if you want to do the research, is the Sino-Iron Project in Australia, which starts in 2006 as a two-point $4 billion project and has seen something like 900% cost overrun since because CIDIC didn't know how to conduct a mining project at the time and uh, they still don't. They were the, the, the premier investor in the, in the project. Um, that's an example. The, the problem wasn't the original agreement between CIDIC, China International Trust and Investment Corporation, and, its, and the Australian holders of the land. The problem was in the implementation of the project. And it goes on and on and on. Uh, it's just absolutely wonderful if you want to laugh at big Chinese companies. I would laugh at big American companies too, but currently American Airlines has the advantage over me, so I'm not, I'm not laughing. Um, the last comment about the nature of the tracker is, and you know, some people have disagreed with this. Uh, I stand by it because it's my intellectual interest. We list parent companies. We do not list the subsidiaries. Um, I want to see the pattern of the footprint of large Chinese entities. I don't want to just use the name that's on the transaction. It makes it harder to replicate the work. I acknowledge that. Um, I'm providing it for free. As I said, it, my interest is what large SOEs are doing. Uh, I will tell you how much trouble this gets in. I have had more than one, more than five, maybe more than 10, government officials in host countries call me up and yell at me saying, you have no idea what you're talking about. There's no Chinese company by this name operating in our country. How dare you say this? This is false. And I'll say, the company you're referring to is a subsidiary of the company I'm referring to. Are you aware of that? No. No. The government officials handling the transaction don't know they're not dealing with the parent company. Repeatedly. So just as a, this is an editorial remark. I, work, I don't know what you guys know what a think tank is. Um, we can do whatever the hell we want. I don't have to have tenure. I don't have to do anything. I, it's, it's, it's the biggest scam of, of all time if you can get the job. It's not easy to get the job. So I get to say whatever I want. I get to upset the Chinese. I get to upset the U.S. government. I get to upset anyone, you know, upset anyone I want. The debt trap argument the U.S. government has used against some Chinese interaction with BRI countries, I just find really unconvincing. And the reason is because I've been interacting with those host countries for years, and they have no idea what's going on. Now, you can blame the Chinese for taking advantage of incompetent host country governments. But the primary reason these countries get into debt is because they're incompetent. Or they're deliberately incompetent, as the case may be. Deliberately incompetent can be translated to corrupt if you want it to be uncharitable. Um, but nonetheless, when the company, countries don't know what companies they're dealing with, certainly a complicated term structure for their borrowing is beyond those people. Uh, and I know because I've gotten yelled at over the phone, and it's not one country. A number of times, um, they don't know who they're dealing with. And so that's the question I prefer to answer. I want to know who's in charge of the company that's investing, not just the name of the, of the shell company that's created. It also fits methodologically with the idea of the tracker. If you set up a subsidiary in Hong Kong or the Caymans, that's not what we're interested in. We're interested in where the money comes from originally. So how do we do this? That's all to say, that was all motivation to say, um, this is the nature of the project, and you should be sitting here saying, I don't believe you can gather this information. Uh, we have 
3,300 transactions. Um, try to find one that you don't uh, that's listed that you have no evidence for. You won't be able to. Those are well documented transactions. The sources are corporate. Um, they're not national. I don't care what national governments say. National governments don't do a very good job of this at all. That includes the United States. The United States does not properly identify what a Chinese company is, so we have wrong results for the extent of Chinese investment in the United States. It certainly includes smaller countries with fewer resources. The United States has no excuse for being wrong. Plenty of these countries don't have any resources to track, to track who they're dealing with. Um, the press, the press is a start. We might use articles in the press as a start, sure. You can't, uh, no transaction isn't included in the data set if it's just found in the press. You know, we could use a cocktail. Uh, Meg and I were talking before this event. If Meg said, I heard this, I'd write it down and say, check it out. But to be in the tracker, you need to have a, a, a um, participating company provide the information that we want. The date and amount, meaning Huawei does this thing, for example, where they say, we're going to invest a billion dollars over six years in blank. That does not count because we don't know what they're investing in and we don't know when. When a company tells you the date and the amount um, and the specific outlays so that we can identify a sector and perhaps a subsector, that's what counts. Where do they do that? They do that in disclosures to the Shanghai Stock Exchange, disclosures to the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, once in a while disclosures to New York, Singapore, London, Toronto, uh, Frankfurt, etc. Mostly disclosures to stock exchange. They do it with press releases. They do it in annual reports. They do it on their websites. And sometimes they have partners who do it for them, which is always nice. Um, I, as a policy person, I want more greenfield investment for a variety of reasons, but as a, somebody tracking the data, M&A is better because there are two, two shots at getting the information right. Um, so that's where the information comes from. It comes from the companies involved, mostly Chinese companies, not always because sometimes they have partners. Um, the weakness of the data is that the companies change their minds. And if you want the number one example of, country, of a country where, where Chinese companies change their minds, I don't mean change their minds in like some speech by a corporate official. Who cares? I mean, they write stuff down, disclose it to Hong Kong, which supposedly has standards for the quality of disclosures, and then they change their minds completely two years later. And the country where you see that most often is Nigeria. Um, our number for Chinese construction in Nigeria is backed, every single project is backed by a Chinese company, a large Chinese firm with interests around the world offering a disclosure to a stock exchange. And I still don't believe it. It's still too high because they change their minds on what they're actually doing in the country. So that is a big limit. Um, Corporate sources are better than national sources because the corporations actually know what country they're coming from and they don't stop. They don't say I invested in Hong Kong when they didn't invest in Hong Kong, when they invested through Hong Kong, but they change their minds and that means we have to revise the tracker every time they change their minds. Every edition of the tracker has, an er has errors in it. Um, it also has emissions. I wouldn't call the emissions errors because usually the emissions come from the fact that I, who make the final decision on the inclusion of any transaction, don't like the quality of the source. So sometimes we'll say, I know there's something going on here. I don't like the quality of the source. We're not including it. That's an omission. What I mean by an error is the company has told us this. I can show you the document, but I bet it's wrong because I've seen it happen too many times. Exactly what rail projects are China, is China engaged in in Nigeria? That's a topic for dissertation, if anyone cared. Good luck, by the way. Um, get your dissertation out and do your presentations really quickly because it's going to change in a couple months um, and people are going to hold you responsible. Um, 
All right. So how do how did we start this? Um, in 2005, I literally called people up. I called up uh, MCC, China Metallurgical, and said, Min Metals, which, by the way, has since taken over MCC, but then they were separate companies. Uh, Min Metals told me about their project in Chile, so you can tell me about your project in Papua New Guinea. And that usually worked. Um, they usually would tell, uh, tell pe uh, me that. I joined the public policy world in 2009. Um, if you want an explanation for that, see the 2008 Lehman shock. So suddenly I wasn't in the private sector anymore. And in the public policy world, they don't just want handwritten notes and my assurance that that's how the conversation went. Um, so there, you know, that period of time, you switch over from contacting the firms, although some were still quite happy to talk to you about their investment, to documenting there would be press releases from the oil majors, from China Investment Corporation. They started disclosing to the bourses because, as you remember, the financial crisis, which drove me out of the private sector, Chinese investments started to become important. People started looking to Chinese capital as a replacement um, for capital lost, at least temporarily, during the contraction. So in response to that, you had Chinese investors starting to document what they were doing for public relations reasons, but nonetheless, it allowed the switch over from casual contact to um, documentation. We have a open source corporate disclosure for every single transaction in the tracker. Sometimes they're only in Chinese, which is unfortunate because people will ask me in English and I'm like, this is all I have. But we have one for every every single document uh, transaction in the tracker, and if we don't have one, if we don't have one, it doesn't get included. Um, an uh, I think an illustration about the nature of the tracker comes from what happens as I joined a public policy world in 2009, which is at that time none of you, some of you aren't even like you were like six back then, but those of you who are old enough to remember a whole ten years ago, China was claiming that uh, Congress was claiming that China was taking over Africa. And I had this data set, and I had like almost no Chinese investment in Africa. I said, what the hell are they talking about? And it turns out they were talking about construction projects, not ownership, um, but Chinese performing services in country, uh, large, you know, somewhat grandiose projects on, on many occasions, and having a very large extended, not an indefinite, but extended multi-year Chinese presence. So that's, that's the investment data set starts in 2005. The construction data set actually starts in 2009. Um, if you want the biggest single flaw of the tracker, if anyone cares about this, I would not use our 2005 to 2009 construction data. It's just what we could find starting in 2009, because that's when I started following it, was 2009, because before in 2006, 2007, no one cared. The Chinese never put out, a, they still don't really put out a figure, but it, back then they were putting out nothing, and the figures they put out now are actually a copy of the tracker, um, and methodologically, not, not the exact same numbers, because they'll also include exports of equipment. Uh, so if you use the tracker and you care about construction, which you should, because Chinese construction is very important in, a large, in large parts of the world, our, our numbers last decade, it's an, it's an illustration. They're not, they're not good numbers. They start being better um, in 2010. I'm not sure that we're comprehensive either. Um, compare a, a comprehensive after 2010 either. Compare a, an acquisition in Germany. You have a Chinese firm, you have a German firm, you have local reporting requirements that are quite high. Now compare, a, compare that to a construction project in Rwanda. Chinese firm might not even report it. They don't necessarily think it's material, even if it's $100 million. It might be done on a completely nonprofit basis financed by a Chinese government grant. SOEs do that all the time. 
The Rwandans aren't going to report it in any sort of accurate fashion. Local countries like to exaggerate the amount of Chinese involvement far beyond the actual extent of Chinese involvement. That's true across the board. Whoever's in charge wants to say, I got billions of dollars of Chinese investment. Do that in this country. If I wanted to embarrass current public figures, I could. There's a, there was a, a U.S. senator, I won't give out the party or the state, who was insisting that a Chinese company that had $3 billion of assets was going to invest $5 billion in the state. Like he's not gonna, They're not going to invest $5 billion of their own money. Where do you think that money's coming from? And he stopped talking about it because it was obvious that money was going to come from a state-owned Chinese bank, and he didn't want to say that anymore. So local politicians are not good sources of information, which means that some Chinese construction projects are not well-reported and certainly not reported in a timely fashion. Um, the positive thing about construction in terms of tracking it, not necessarily in terms of its outcome, is that, and I'll, I'll talk about data in a second, but you see private investment, private Chinese investment, uh, emerging this decade um, and becoming substantial, construction is utterly dominated by SOEs. There are subcontractors that are private. The premium contractors, something like 98% of the value, construction value we track is SOEs. So at least you know who to go to when you're monitoring construction. They just don't always tell you uh, what's going on. Um, the tracker is now kind of a self-generating we have 14 years of, of information on who builds and who invests overseas. We know the companies to check when there's a new company, which was common for a little period of time in 2015, 2016, and is not common otherwise. We find it eventually. Maybe it gets reported in the press. We might be late, but we have a very large data set of the Chinese companies that have gone global. And it overlaps with Ministry of Commerce's data set, but ours is bigger. Uh, at least versus the ones they publish. Um, so we don't miss very much because we know who to check. And that's another advantage of corporate sources. I don't have to guess the identity of the companies. I know who they are. All right. I went through that quickly because, I don't know, this whole thing is kind of old hat for me, right? Um, you should stop me and say, well, it might be old hat for you, but you're not doing a very good job explaining it. That's the input side. That's the methodology side. Does anyone have questions about the methodology? You can't find that online. The reason you can't find it online is because I used to have a version of the tracker online that described the whole thing, and it showed up on Taobao. And it's free, so I don't know how anyone is selling it, but it showed up as being created by someone else. <laughs> so now I don't provide the methodology because it would be ripped off. So if you have questions about the methodology, you have to contact me directly. People do every single day, but it's done purposefully. Um, anyone have any questions here before I move on? Troublemaker to yeah. my left. Yes, I do have questions about trouble, actually. Um, so, the, um, so the trouble transactions, I was surprised by the way that you characterize it, which is basically that even since 2005, it's been essentially the U.S. government informally blocking or discouraging Chinese overseas investments through, so I, I assume, sovereign pressure on other governments? Is that the No, 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 sorry. It started with the U.S. government doing that. The reason I created the data set is because the U.S. government doing that. Sino-Iron, for example, had nothing to do with the U.S. government. Mm -hmm. It had to do with the Chinese firms not being ready to execute that transaction. Another very large failure is, uh, is 
Chinalco, China Aluminum, mm -hmm. trying to buy Rio, trying to buy a larger stake in Rio Tinto. They mm -hmm. successfully bought one with Alcoa. They tried to buy a larger one when Rio Tinto stock was being crushed in a financial crisis and the commodities bust. And Rio basically stalled them using the positive news about they're about to buy our stock, they're about to buy our stock, waited until their stock recovered and said, ah, just kidding, we don't want to sell it to you. So they got played. And so that's not a U.S. government action. That's okay. a failure on so the Chinese the definition corporate side. Of, so, so let me ask this. So mm -hmm. the definition then of troubled includes but is not exclusive to political trouble. Right. And if so, could you give a definition of what troubled means? Is, there, do, a, is mean, there a bright line criterion? Or it's no? just it's, – it's a, it's a abnormal failure – of an agreement. In other words, all outward investment is subject to some risk. Sure. You know, we thought this bridge was going to cost $300 million to bridge and it, build and it cost $350. This is boring. That's no, not it's troubled. Not. It's normal. Um, it's certainly not. We tried to make a deal with this company and they disagreed. That's not troubled. It's the, the parties have made an agreement and there's been a problem that's worth at least $100 million according to one of the parties afterwards. And the problem can be regulatory interference by the host country. Or by China. China has unraveled a number of Chinese transactions. The, the very famous one is China Development Bank. You, unless you followed this 10 years ago, you wouldn't know this story. China Development Bank, an arm of the government, tried to buy a German bank, and the government of China said no. So it's a little strange. Like, you know, the left hand of China says, I want to buy the, this bank, and the right hand of China says, no, you can't. The Germans had nothing to do with it. Um, so you have government interference on both ends. And then you have essentially corporate incompetence. Mm -hmm. And that's really what I wanted to track. And, and sometimes I get blowback saying, look, lots of companies make mistakes in overseas investment. Absolutely true. But the interesting thing, why did I start studying China? Because they were new in 2005. You would expect the mistakes to be made. And you can see it. The, the most experienced Chinese investors are the oil companies and CIC, China Investment Corporation. They made their mistakes early. Then the metals companies made their mistakes. Then you had companies, as we all know now, like H and A uh, and 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 uh, well, I don't want to say Anbang because that wasn't really a mistake. Uh, well, okay, we'll just we'll just well, Wanda is another example. You've seen these private and 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 quasi private companies make mistakes, and that's the point. It's mm -hmm. to watch the progression of new Chinese companies, first time investors come on the scene and screw up. Cnook screwed up because they thought, I have the highest bid for Unical. I don't need to do anything. There are wonderful quotes from the then chairman saying, why do I need to talk to the Congress? Screw them. I mean, he literally was contemptuous of the Congress, which, you know, is not a smart idea. Um, so they were inexperienced. You know, the whole point is to track the mistakes China is making, not because they're the only ones who make mistakes, but because that's the, that's the a very interesting part of the process, which, you know, if you are interested in outward investment as a global phenomenon, we can't really do that for the U.S. in the 50s. That's when American companies were, were making mistakes is in the 50s and 60s. I can't go back and recreate that, but I could watch as it un, un, unfolded with China. So it's absolutely not U.S. government pressure. That occurs in some U.S. transactions but and a couple of Iran transactions, but mostly it's, you know, has nothing to do with the U.S. Okay. Thank you. And we've gotten, you know, you're welcome. And we've gotten, you know, the number of transactions on the, using this methodology is up near 300. You know, by country, by sector, we don't have enough transactions for any large end work. But we do in the aggregate. You know, you can learn something over time as watch these Chinese companies make these mistakes, then they stop. Then a new set of Chinese companies comes along and they make mistakes and then they stop. Um, so the oil company's big mistake was they, they wildly over, so oil and finance wildly overpaid for assets when they first started. Um, 
and it took years and years and years for those valuations to be justified by their initial payment. There's a wonderful story about Sinopec and Canadian oil sands. They're not bidding against anyone and they keep raising their bid. They've already won the bid. They, it's, it's like the Canadians came in and said, oh, $2 billion, that's pretty good. And Sinopec said, oh, 2.5. The Canadians said, oh, 2.5, no, three. And then they just kept, you know, that's an inexperienced investor at the time. They don't, do, they don't make those mistakes anymore. Um, but new Chinese companies come on. So that's the point of Troubled. It is absolutely an art form, but it's an art form motivated by the fact that the launch point is really not Chinese Academy of Sciences IBM, it's actually Sinook Unical, which is a failure. Because Sinook Unical is bigger than the last five years of Chinese investment to that point combined. So, yes? Good question. Uh, it's 100 million and up. So we ha absolutely have a property category, but it is not the category, for example, that the National Association of Realtors tracks when they say ordinary Chinese are buying you know, $18 billion worth of U.S. property in $500,000 chunks. We don't include that figure because there's no transaction of $100 million. So the property tends to be commercial property. There is some residential property included. There is residential property construction on the construction side, but we don't include ordinary home purchases. So I, I disappointed an Australian audience rather sharply because they wanted to know what was going to happen to the price of flats in Sydney. And I'm like, I'm sorry, I don't have any information on that. Yes? Um, that is a very good question. The answer is no. Um, the reason is, uh, and I investigated that right from the beginning, the corporate side is much more transparent than the financial side. And the corporate side has problems in it, but it's still more transparent. It is very difficult. You can get the banks, the main financing banks, to tell you their aggregate books, but you cannot get them to tell you what individual transactions you financed. They don't like disclosing that. So... I just have been unable to, I was, I've been unable to do that. There are some people who do that by region, but they're again talking about China lent money to this country and I want to work on a transaction basis. So that we, we, we can't, can't get the, we cannot get the Chinese side to cooperate. I would say right now I'm not well loved by the Chinese government, but in 2005 and 2006, they had no idea who I was. And Chinese corporates were, were pretty happy to talk to me in most cases. There was, they didn't want to talk about Sudan. That was obviously a sensitive issue. But in most cases, they were, they were pleased at going global. And then there was official Chinese government support for go, going global, as you all know. So then they were really pleased. And the Chinese banks never wanted to talk details. And of course, that reflects the same, the same thing is true domestically. Um, bank books are, are much less likely to be open than corporate books. So good question. Um, I can tell you that I, I, I know a lot about several hundred Chinese construction transactions overseas, not our whole data set, which is whatever it is now, 1,600. But I know 200, let's say. They've all been financed by China. So all been financed by state financial institutions. The large ones are all financed by state financial institutions. I'm not saying all 1,600 are, but the ones that I know about are, and they're, it's not a random sample. So probably it, you, can, you can guess what the financing looks like, but the details that I want on the corporate side, we couldn't get them on the financial side. Okay, I'm gonna move on to output, um, which is what, our, you know, what the results say. Uh, the, the, the main observation here is that our investment total from 2005 through 2018 is actually very similar to Ministry of Commerce's, which is strange. 
because we don't include $100 million, less than $100 million transactions. Uh, the in-year variation is mostly having to do with dating. You know, we use the corporate announcement. The corporations don't tell us exactly when they spend the money. They might tell Mofcom that, so Mofcom would, would, could have better dating than us. I would say in using the tracker, don't emphasize one calendar year. I have to do that for the press. If you ever see me quoted talking about, oh, 2018 was much worse than 2017, it's because they make me do it, right? I mean, really, there's not this hard separation between 2018, 2017, and a foreign investment. Like, all your money is spent one year and none of it is spent the next year. We have to pin, the, pin this down in some way. Um, I wouldn't overemphasize uh, a single calendar year. Um, one reason, one period of time Mofcom was close to us is because they were explicitly copying our numbers. I mean, when I say that, I mean a Mofcom official called me up and said, what number do you have? And then they changed their numbers. That was only true for a few years, though. Um, in 2013, the BRI is launched by Xi, and Chinese numbers immediately get harder to replicate which is also not a surprise to anyone who knows that when there's a political priority attached to a program, the numbers start to become um, conveniently good. Uh, China has had, until very recently, a fixed reinvestment series, meaning it will say, this is the discretionary investment that occurred in March of 2014, and then there was this amount of reinvestment by Chinese companies overseas, which is not measured, it's just asserted, and it's the same amount every month within a year. $1.5 billion every month, $18 billion for the year. The next year, $1.6 billion every month, $19.2 billion a year, and so on. Um, last year, that disappeared. Uh, it also has a series on financial investment, and I'm not really clear what the difference clear on the difference between financial investment and regular investment. Those series, that series is inconsistent. It shows up late. You would think financial investment would be faster. So starting in 2013, we started to have more problems comparing our numbers to Mofcom's numbers. Their numbers should be larger, but sometimes they're a lot larger and sometimes they're smaller. Overall, we match official Chinese numbers very well, except that we give you proper bilateral and better sector figures than they do. Recently, 2017, and this I have the email, direct communication from the Ministry of Commerce. Why? The largest Chinese outward investment is in Syngenta, which is a Swiss agro tech company, and the transaction is valued at about $44 billion. Does not show up in Chinese official statistics. And I said, what, what, what happened? We have a much bigger number than you for 2017. What happened? Oh, well, that was all finance outside of China. Number one, I don't believe that. But let's say it's true. Was it financed by Chinese money? Yes, it was. Again, this isn't an email from a government official who knows me. They're being very careful in their communication. What that means is the Chinese sent 40-some billion dollars out of the country. They didn't count it as investment when they sent it out, because that would have been bigger than total Chinese investment for a number of years. And they didn't count an investment when they used it, because it was already outside the country. So you have a methodological problem where money has left China, been used as investment, and never counted as investment from China in another country. Why? Why do they do that? Because in 2016, China decided that there was too much outward investment, and outward investment needed to fall in 2017. But if you included Sagenta, it didn't fall. So the, there was a political mandate to show a decline in Chinese outward investment because of the excesses of 2016. Sagenta would have violated that mandate, so it vanished. Um, last year, and the re this is a setup for the, for the punchline and the title of the talk, um, last year we have a crash. 
We have a crash in part because we have 2017 is actually the biggest, the record year for Chinese investment, including the biggest ever transaction, which China never counted. Um, so part of it is the base is high. Part of it is there was a decline in China's investment. And in particular, the decline shows up in the fourth quarter and it's SOEs. Private firms are not, don't, private firm, the drop in, in private investment in China is in 2017. Syngenta is, is bought by an SOE, a couple of SOEs. So private firms corrected in 2017. In 2018, the further drop is state firms. We could be missing it. I don't think we are. State firms investing in, in the rich countries, the US and Western Europe, get a lot of attention now, even attempts to do so. If you follow this, you know that Three Gorges is trying to buy the rest of a very large Portuguese utility. They're going back and forth and now fighting with a US investment fund run by somebody I know. So that's fun for me to watch. Um, but you don't, you don't make large investments if you're an SOE in the United States or Western Europe or Australia and, and have it go under the radar. <laughs> they could be investing in the BRI countries, but China likes to brag about investment in the BRI countries, and their, their own numbers don't show that either. So I think our number is right, and that we've had a, we had a, depending on how you want to characterize 2017, something of a crash in 2018, and it's due to lack of investment in SOEs. And in particular, the decline is in Europe. So in 2017, the US starts inhibiting some Chinese SOE investment, and China also cracks down on it. In 2018, Europe joins the joins the party. And that's, you know, this is me giving you numbers that support the general feeling that the world has become more hostile to Chinese investment, which is part of the explanation. It's not the whole explanation. The other part of the explanation is that China itself restricted outward investment starting in late 2016, especially in real estate and entertainment. But that's not in dispute. What's in dispute is the extent of the drop in 2018 and, and, where, and where it is located. We consider it to be quite extensive and, most, and, and the chief reason being SOEs in Europe, meaning they are not investing in Europe. On the construction side, so let me start off with the opening observation that BRI is absolutely dominated by construction, not investment. Local countries report, my favorite is dealing with the Pakistani government. Pakistani government insists on using the word investment for the China-Pakistan, CPEC, China-Pakistani Economic uh, Cooperation, um, or whatever the translation is in English, I don't know. It's about that. But when you ask the Pakistanis, wow, $60 billion of Chinese investment, those must be very important Pakistani assets that Chinese are buying. Oh, they're not buying any assets. Okay, so they're investing but not buying any assets. I need somebody to invest in me that way. Give me $60 billion and get nothing. <laughs> what the Pakistanis mean is they're building. And that's true elsewhere as well. Um, most of the BRI is Chinese construction. It is not investment. We also see this fading of SOE, uh, SOE globalization in the construction series. So that's why you have the title of the talk. Let me go back and, and try to document that a little bit. Since 2010, remember I told you the last decade's construction series is kind of poor. We have at least 100, $100 million transactions. So every transaction is $100 million. We have at least 100 construction transactions worth at least $100 million every year. And every year, the total of construction measured that way is over $50 billion. So we're covering a lot of ground. In, the, in that period, we've now gone well over $500 billion in total Chinese construction overseas. The number of transactions picks up in, in late 2013 as the BRI is launched. In late 2014, the value picks up. It increases again in 2015. It increases again in 2016. 
uh, levels off in 2017, but it does not decline. And then in 2018, it does decline. And it's mostly due to weakness in the second half, especially in the fourth quarter. Like, it's like we went back in time 10 years for the amount of Chinese construction activity. It is not due to private firms. Private firms don't do anything in construction. <clears throat> so on the one hand, let me say it's freaking one quarter I'm basing a lot of this on. Right? So I just could be, you know, so what? There was a quarter where they said don't use a lot of foreign exchange up. You can't have financing for your construction projects. You can't have financing for your investments. And the SOEs went, you know, not entirely silent, but, but partly silent. That is a possibility, a probability. If anyone wants to say, look, it's one quarter. You're making a big deal out of nothing. I'll say, yeah, probably right. Here's the thing. Everyone sees SOEs aren't welcome as, as they used to be in the U.S. and Western Europe. No one yet thinks about what if the BRI is fading already? That's what the fourth quarter says. It doesn't prove anything. It's just a quarter. But it's a surprise. I wasn't expecting it, and I follow this on a literally daily basis. So that's the kind of thing you try to warn policymakers of if you're in Washington. You try to warn the business community of if you have another job in New York, which I do. I have a job in Washington and a job in New York. You try to say, don't be surprised. It might not be true. Probably isn't true. But don't be surprised if the BRI, the quantities in the BRI are fading. One more point along those lines. The reason the BRI is so big is because the number of countries has expanded. The official portal now has over 120 countries in the BRI, as opposed to the, six, the original 64. So the BRI has gotten bigger because the number of countries has gotten bigger, not because the pace of Chinese activity in the last two years has increased. Um, one, a couple of remarks about trouble, though, that we sort of are already covered this. Um, it takes a while for a transaction to be trouble. The dating is somewhat arbitrary because companies don't say, boy, we lost a lot of money on December 14th. Really a ton. We need to tell all our stockholders that. They tell, they tell you after the fact, and they're kind of vague about what happened. Um, we don't see a pattern in Troubled. It's, there's a big tr project they tried, and it failed. And then it boosts the, the, tr the volume of Trouble transactions uh, by year, by year, and then it fades. In particular, we see a pattern of inexperienced Chinese companies doing poorly. But for China as a whole, we don't see a pattern in the last five, six, seven, eight years. We don't see a pattern from U.S. CFIUS intervention, meaning I'm not arguing that, that regulators in the U.S. and Western Europe haven't become more hostile. They're not intervening after the fact. They're deterring Chinese transactions before they get started. There are fewer attempts by Chinese firms, not more failures. Um, and you might that might not be obvious from headlines, which like to you know exaggerate the extent of... of of the headbutting between the US and China, or between now China and Western Europe. But Chinese firms are not going well down the path and then having the, the, the rug pulled out from under them. They're just not trying to invest as much as they used to. All right, a few more results, and then hopefully we'll have uh, questions. Um, the biggest areas for, for troubled are the US and Australia, because US and Australia are the biggest recipient of Chinese investments. Uh, I would say the American fig the Australian figure is very impressive. Australia does not have a large population. It's a rich country, but because its population is small, its, its economy is not that large. The U.S. figures are not impressive. Um, the peak for Chinese investment in the U.S. is 2016. It's less than 0.3% of U.S. GDP. Not 3%, 0.3%. 
So the U.S. does not draw a lot of Chinese investment, even though in aggregate it draws more than any other country. It's not important by size. By sector, as I mentioned, energy leads. Um, transport, transportation has become more important uh, under the BRI. Metals get some investment. Real estate sees some construction, as was mentioned. There's a lot of fuss over technology investment. Even, like I counted IBM's personal computer unit in 2005 as technology. Not sure the personal computers are supposed to count as technology. It's certainly not advanced technology. But even on a broad definition of technology, technology investment is less than 5% of China's total. Um, ownership, uh, private share of investment. In, Peaked in 2016, dropped in 2017 because of Chinese crackdown. In 2018, it recovered because SOEs went away. Didn't recover because there was more private spending. So we had a, a period in late 2015 and, and into 2016 where there's a lot of private investment. Um, I would characterize a lot of that as removing capital from the Chinese economy and sending it anywhere you can. Um, we can be more controversial than that if you like. And that has, that has dried up since. Uh, and the reason the private share rebounds in 2018 is because the SOE investment drops, not because the private share recovers. Greenfield investment, the same thing. Merger and acquisition spending drops in 2018, so greenfield investment looks like it does better. But greenfield isn't, isn't actually doing better. And one of the political problems with China's investment overseas is that greenfield investment is generally more welcomed by host governments, and China does not want to engage in greenfield investment. It wants to engage in acquisitions. Um, investment is all in rich countries or rich resource countries, uh, the U.S., Australia, to a lesser extent Brazil, although Brazil is definitely in the top ten. Construction is all in less developed economies. Pakistan, I mentioned Nigeria, Bangladesh. Um, so there's a very clear division and makes the, putting them both in the same data set interesting for me personally. China wants to own stuff in rich countries or where there are resources, and it wants to build in countries that lack the expertise. China has an extremely high comparative advantage in building in under difficult conditions. And you know, most of these projects are not necessarily for profit. They're profit optional, would be a way to put it. Um, so most construction companies in Korea or Europe, not interested. It's too hard for them. And the Chinese will come in and build in those areas. And if you know anything about my work, which there's no reason for you to, you know I'm a very big critic of the, the current Chinese government. But if you're a country and you want a power plant, it's the only you know, who's the only company that will country that will build a power plant for you? It's only a Chinese company that will do it. That's a service that's not being provided by anyone else. So you know, I, when I advise U.S. government, I say, look, we're not we're not set up to do this. We don't have the construction companies to compete with the Chinese. But if you're worried about the Chinese winning friends overseas, of course they are. You need a better road. China will build it. Eventually, the World Bank might build it, but they need to do a lot of environmental impact assessments. So in about nine years, you might have a better road. China will build it in two years. That's, the, you know, that's why China goes to these, these countries that – they're countries that need China's help. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll give you a BRI number, and then I think I'll, I'll, I'll close. I, I'm, I've got a lot of numbers I could throw at you, and I don't want to. We have – if you include the whole 120 countries – since the BRI was launched. Again, so the BRI was launched with, with less than 65. It's now at 120, over 120. If you include all of it, we have $350 billion worth of Chinese construction in the BRI since late 2013. It's a lot. Now, they weren't all those projects weren't labeled BRI projects, but they're in BRI countries. And the BRI is just a branding exercise. It's what China was doing before that, giving it, trying to get credit. 
So that gives you a sense of, of what the level of Chinese activity is. Investment is much less. It's barely over $100 billion. But construction is averaging in this period $70 billion a year in countries that are small economies that have no replacement for the Chinese services provided. Okay. Um, I, again, I, I ran through a lot of output results because there are too many of them. But there's a paper, January 19th, you can read. Um, so three years ago, people thought Chinese investment was the wave of the future. Um, the Chinese were uncomfortable with that extent of investment. Then the U.S. became uncomfortable. Western Europe has become uncomfortable. Now some BRI countries are becoming uncomfortable. I think we'll get Chinese in annual investment in the $125 billion range, construction in the $100 billion range. That's nothing to sneeze at. <clears throat> Those are big numbers. Um, but I think that might be it. I think the Chinese global, the pace of Chinese globalization has, may have peaked, uh, actually fallen back a little bit, but the point is that it may have peaked. I think the BRI taking over the world is going to fall by the same wayside as China taking over the world through its investment fell a few years ago. And, you know, do I have conclusive evidence for that? No. But I haven't even gotten into China's balance of payments problems, which would give me more evidence for it. So uh, that's, that's the point here. Uh, I want to get out in front. You know, why did I come up here and, and dread the in, uh, utter inability of U.S. airlines to ever tell the truth about their scheduling? Um, it's because, uh, you know, I, I, like, I want to tell people, if you start seeing evidence of a pivot that China's globalization pace has flagged, it started in the fourth quarter of 2018 with state-owned enterprises. I'll stop there. So I'll take my prerogative, and then we'll go to Ross. Um, so I have two questions, and um, um, huh? Sit down now. Yeah, please. Yeah. Um, there's there's microphones here, so Great. sit and have um, water. I'll be as long-winded as possible, so he can have a sip. Um, no. So I wanted to ask one question about the BRI and another question about the Chinese balance of payments. So, um, so on the on the BRI, I wonder. So I don't find it surprising that BRI investment, especially from SOEs, flagged in in the fourth quarter of 2018 because there was an announced recalibration, mm -hmm. right? And so I wonder how much of this is like the process that you described basically for Chinese oil companies, metal companies, et cetera, which is they entered into these construction things. Partly the branding of the BRI hurt them because it limited their maneuverability because now they have to please see and do good public relations things. Right. And when they get into trouble in certain countries, they can't just say, no, you still owe me this money because it's part of a China global branded experience. Right. And so how much of this is really like a permanent slowdown? I mean, you seem to think a lot versus a temporary recalibration and then we'll start to see investment pick back up if they figure things out. And then my second question, and I'll just go ahead and ask, um, is about the balance of payments. So the thing that I show and tell people whenever I talk about Chinese global investment is that for all of the attention that we give FD over Chinese overseas you know, foreign direct investment, um, capital flight through errors and omissions exceeds foreign direct investment almost every year since 2015. Um, so I wonder if you can, um, if you, I mean, obviously we only know that number as a residual. We don't, by definition, we don't know where money's going when it leaves in suitcases or through casinos in Macau or whatever. But if you could say or speculate a little bit about where that money is going and why we have the accounting problem on the balance of payments, I would, um, I would really appreciate it. Sure. Um, first question, of course, as I said, it could be just a temporary blip. I, I don't. I see, and this is because I'm biased towards data rather than policy statements, I see Chinese policy statements following data, not causing data. Mm -hmm. In other words, after the firms say, I don't want to do this anymore, then you have this justification for what they're going to, they don't want to do anymore in the first place. Uh, the recalibration comes from 
where the pace of expansion uh, of SOE investment in BRI is unsustainable, forget it. Then you get an announcement of recalibration. So could I have could I be overinterpreting this result? Of course, absolutely. Um, again, I don't I don't I'm not an academic. I don't have to wait five years and make sure it's true. Uh, I get credit for <laughs> I get credit for showing up on 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 TV and saying these things. Uh, first, um, and then you know when I'm wrong, no one remembers. <laughs> there are people in Washington who made a living on being wrong and having no one remember. Um, so you know, I would say I don't. Just like the BRI wasn't a a sudden expansion of Chinese activity overseas, it was just it was a a, a shaping of that activity. Um, I don't I don't find the announcement of recalibration to be causing. The, the reduction. The reduction may prove temporary, but I think it's the other way around. They're explaining something that was happening on the ground after the fact. Uh, now, with regard to the balance of payments, um, some of this is just unavoidable. Anytime you set up capital controls, there are leaks. And there are leaks in part because there are actual leaks and the leaks in part because you're nervous about, say, about calling certain transactions, capital transactions, so you dump them in some other account. And then China scale means that the leaks are not going to be $100 million a year. They're going to be in the tens of billions or hundreds of billions. Um, that's the norm. What we saw in 2015-16, so, so pardon me for getting a little bit colorful. Um, I, I've often wondered who went, to, who went to prison for the BRI. She announces the BRI in, in, in fall of 2013. And clearly one of the motivations is China keeps accumulating balance of payment surpluses, notwithstanding uh, capital loss uh, through error, you know, as measured in errors and emissions. And they don't have anything good to do with the money. He doesn't want to be dumping it all on U.S. Treasuries. U.S. Treasuries have no yield and doesn't like the United States anyway. So look, let's get credit for what we were doing anyway. Stick some more money into financing. China is, you know, is, going, to, is going to improve the whole world. And <laughs> eight months later, China's balance of payments flips. <clears throat> no one's expecting it, including me. Certainly not the people telling Xi to make a big speech about the BRI and get it moving in the Constitution when the money financing it is going to start to dry up. Uh, I still don't know what happened in, May, in spring of 2014. But you have a very clear, not a normal, this amount of capital flight we see from China all the time. It's just portfolio diversification in any other country, but it's illegal in China, so it shows up in errors and omissions. That was 2013. That was 2012. That was 2011. 2014, the volumes increase. Now, you can tell a story that it's people reacting to the, the, the anti-corruption campaign. Okay, that could be. But I don't know what happened in February of 2014 to cause a May flip in 2014. I don't know why we went from normal Chinese capital flight at the beginning of 2014 to abnormally high in, in, in spring and summer of 2014. Now, the next step we do know. In August of 2015 and again in January 2016, the People's Bank does really stupid things and says, I don't know what the value of the RMB should be, but I think it should be lower. The worst possible communication, which is there's some vague depreciation heading your way, and we don't know the extent of it, and but you know, just it's that's what should happen. So you've already seen an increase in net, and you've, you've seen from from large net capital inflow to small net capital outflow, a big shift. But the net capital outflow is still small, and the People's Bank pile like takes. There's a little bit of a fire, and they're like, you know what, this fire needs needs a ton of gasoline. Let me pour it on top of the fire. So RMB asset holders are being told twice because once wasn't good enough. They had to do it twice. 
your RMB assets are going to be worth less. <clears throat> Meanwhile, there's a go out program. So we get absolutely massive amounts of money leaving China. Not that much of it actually shows up in outward investment, but enough of it shows up in outward investment that the US Congress freaks out and decides that we need to change US regulatory authority. And that, you know, the, the biggest part of Chinese outward investment in 2016 is private Chinese firms investing in the US. That's more important than Europe, it's more important than SOEs. Okay, fine. It's still, as you said, much, it's not that larger component of total outflow. Total outflow is just everybody getting their money out of the country as fast as they can. If you try to measure Chinese wealth, the domestic uh, value of assets in the economy because GDP is a stupid measurement. Um, sorry, that was another unnecessary editorial comment. If you try to measure the value of Chinese wealth, it, it, go, it doesn't grow at all in 2015, 2016. It's not that the Chinese economy is not generating any wealth. It's that it's leaving. And so you had another acceleration that we can characterize, and it fits with your story in that Capital outflow is significantly larger than outward investment, and it's even still larger than outward investment. And assuming that every Chinese construction project, to your point, is financed by loans and all the money is lost. If you take every Chinese, you no, know, so we have, we, we don't have to guess on what the BRI is worth. We have an actual estimate. It's not perfect, but most people are like, oh, you know, a trillion dollars, two trillion dollars eventually. No, no, we have numbers. If you put the numbers on what, on what construction financing is, and you just assume it's all dead money and you add it up with investment, it's still not as big in those two years as capital outflow. So I agree with your point um, with regard to years of high volume, um, because then you, you have regular transactions, ODI, and, and loan financing of construction, and you still have more capital outflow. The standard story with, with capital control countries is they lose money. And because of China scale, it looks like they're losing money. The, the interesting part is spring 2014, to beginning of the winter of 2016 when the, when the crackdown comes and, and capital outflow is stopped, that's when things, you know, outward investment is really just a secondary outcome of loss of money. And if you guys follow Chinese external payments, um, currency and all foreign currency in the banking system, not just official reserves, all foreign currency in the banking system gets really, really close to $5 trillion in April of 2014. And now it's like $1.4 trillion lower than that. So the volume is enormously lower. Now, China can afford it. No one else could afford that, but China can afford it. And the direction has changed. So when she launches the BRI, he's got essentially infinite money to play with. It's more money that he's going to use, and it always goes up. And now he has a, a scary trend and no longer you know, $1.4 trillion less. And I'll add one more political comment just to open this up if people are interested in. <clears throat> China's balance of payments right now is being propped up entirely by the merchandise trade surplus with the United States. That wasn't true three years ago, but it's true now. Their balance of payments would be in serious, it would be large and negative if it not for, for one, trans, one set of transactions, merchandise trade with the US. <clears throat> so if, if there was someone in Washington who wanted to exert more pressure on China, he could go to the administration and say, you have a lot of influence right now. And then the administration would say, that's really interesting. And we have an attention span of 14 seconds. And then they would move on. But as a, as a factual matter, regardless of how the US uses this fact, China balance of payment surplus. And therefore, their BRI financing is actually contingent on selling merchandise to the United States. And I don't really see that changing. I'm not sure where they would get more surpluses from. 
Remember, overall, China's ec external competitiveness is dropping, due, thankfully, better for Chinese people, rising wages. Sometimes better for Chinese people, sometimes worse, rising land prices. Um, so you wouldn't expect a burst of Chinese competitiveness across the board to, to, to lead to more balance of payment surpluses. And everything else has kind of fallen by the wayside as a large surplus except for U.S. merchandise trade. And I know that wasn't your question, but I just felt no, like talking I mean, about I'm, it. No, it's, I'm thrilled. Thank you. Um, Ross, did you? Uh, a question about the China's involvement in Darwin, Australia. There was, as you know, a lot of confusion and disagreement in Canberra, the capital, which is a long, long way from Darwin. And this, by some politicians feeling they were deceived, is this about the duality that you discussed, that the Australians didn't understand uh, what was China's government involvement and what was as planned? Uh, Land sea, yeah. Commercial. Right. And secondly, Darwin's uh, a very small city and the port is a very small port, but it's in a key location. And what's the balance in China's motivation? So um, I was actually in Canberra at the beginning of 2017 uh, because the Australian government wanted me to explain the Trump presidency to them. Huh? Jokes on them. I didn't have a clue. Um, but I got to be in Australia in the summer instead of D.C. in the winter, so that was a positive. I uh, heard a lot about this. I, I, I have made the point for years, um, and I, I apologize if this offends anyone, but it, it fits with 25 years of studying Chinese corporates. If, a chi if, the, if the party wants to pressure a Chinese private firm, it has no recourse. So if you are- private firm has The no private recourse. firm has no recourse. If you think that a, the Chinese entity operating, you know, the one that operate Darwin's port and then, and then do some construction there and investment there as well, is going to be, um, coerced by the, by the party, then it will become a tool of the Chinese state. The end. I don't think there's any, I mean, it's not reasonable, it's never been reasonable to argument that in my view, certainly not reasonable post-Anbang, post HNA, et cetera. Having said that, I don't think there was any motivation for the Chinese, I don't think the Chinese government thinks it can take over, over Darwin. I don't think it can, thinks it can secretly base Chinese special ops forces or, or, or you know, put in remote sensing that would, that would work uh, in the region. Um, so I don't, I'm not qualified to evaluate Australian national security. Uh, my assessment of that is the Australian government should, un I think now has a better understanding than it did several years ago of that in a national security context, you cannot separate state and private Chinese firms. Having said that, I don't think the motivation for the Chinese firm originally was some sort of stalking horse for the PLA or for Chinese intelligence. Um, I, we have a, a problem. It's, a, it's, a, it's either a political problem or a symbolism problem. I am extremely unhappy with the Xi, Jinping, Xi Jinping government. And so I get a lot of people who come to me and say, how can you let the Chinese build metro cars for the DC subway? Because something nefarious will happen. And I keep thinking, you know, what? They'll see me like, you know, lose my temper at somebody on the train and they'll try to blackmail me with it. I mean, you know, everyone has phones. What are they going to see? I don't see, as not a national security expert, I don't see where there's a real threat in Darwin. <clears throat> the symbolism of 
a company that could be controlled by the Chinese government under duress, even if it isn't now, operating at an Australian port, that's, in, that's, that's difficult political symbolism. As you may know, the Israelis are, have the same problem in Haifa. When you say, like, what's the bad thing that's going to happen if the Chinese control the port of Haifa, you really, it's hard for me as not a national security expert to see anything bad. So I think there are two different issues. Are, you know, can Chinese firms be co-opted to, to, to be arms of the state? Absolutely. Any firm at any time. That, it doesn't follow that anything they're involved in is magically a danger. And so my own assessment as not a national security expert is, tell me exactly what you think the Chinese are going to do in Darwin that's dangerous. Don't just say on its face, the Chinese being in Darwin is dangerous. I want to know exactly what the threat is. And that's how I would balance the two things, if that makes any sense. And we, you know, that, that Australia, of course, is on the front lines because per capita among the large economies, it's the biggest recipient of Chinese investment because obviously it is a crucial security role. Um, you know, I know people in the Australian government, of course you do as well. Um, there's a battle here uh, that, that in some ways us, Chinese influence in Australian society, disaffection with Chinese, you know, driving up, buying up land and property. All of that is, is the front lines. I think the, the, the story is, and I, I just briefed the Defense Department, the U.S. Defense Department on this, is the, if you don't know your own national security interests, everything the Chinese do is a threat. Right? The first decision you have to make is what is your actual national security interests? Um, so uh, I, don't, I consider all Chinese firms to be potentially dangerous, but the potential is only realized if they're doing something that actually would harm you and not, as some political lobbyists would say, you know, if you, if you allow the Chinese to do this and you're pro-China or if the Chinese you know, can have build rail cars and that, that will lead to the sabotage of the U.S. logistics chain, military logistics chain, those are not really well-founded arguments. Sorry for ranting, but, but I finally remember the example I wanted to use. Do you remember when China was going to take over the world through rare earths? So China was like, China is the dominant producer of rare earths, never mind the fact that their substitutes and markets don't work on the basis of embargoes. But nonetheless, when you ask people what the rare earths would be used for, they would say there are military applications. Like, what are the military applications? What is the supply necessary to maintain U.S. military performance in the face of a total Chinese embargo of rare earths that would have no leaks whatsoever, which is impossible? It turned out there wasn't a problem when you studied it. But for years, for several years, we had, oh my God, the Chinese control rare earths and rare earths are important, therefore there's a threat. But it didn't follow because no one could actually track what the Chinese were doing to that final bad outcome. And that, that's, that's what I look for in these cases. What exactly is gonna happen out of Darwin? Now if Rory Medcalf or somebody tells me a story about you know, these are the million things the Chinese could do with a Chinese company operating in Darwin, okay, I'll listen. But not just because they're in the port and they own the port. Sorry if that was a long-winded answer. I was really stretching to get to that rare earth story. <laughs> yes, please. Um, in your study of Chinese out outlook going to U.S. investment, what is the uh, average overall, the profitability of these hmm. investments? Are most of these investments money losing? Who are investments? or lost a lot of money because of negotiation, or because of local local regulations, or, or whatever. Are most Chinese outward investments turned out to be money losing? And what's the percentage of successful investments on commercial basis? Mm -hmm. What's the percentage of uh, 
money losing business. And if most of them turn out to be money losing and the security threat is very elusive to Western countries, what's the world? Let them do it. Most of them turn out to be money losing for Chinese anyway. So I 75% agree with you. Um, and I would say the following, you know, because we track trouble transactions, we know the ones that really cost Chinese firms a lot of money. They don't report profit by profit on transactions. And when they do, it's very, there's very dubious self-selection. You'll get uh, like Yang Kuang, which is, um, owns a number of coal operations in Australia, like picking out certain subdivisions of the coal operations and saying they're profitable. But then it turns out that annually they all lost money and you don't find that out till later. So I can tell you that the majority of Chinese investments are profitable. I cannot tell you what the volume is, right? I can only tell you the volume of the obvious problems because I don't get numbers and they don't report numbers on, they'll, they'll say, we turned a profit in our operations in this country. Okay, how big was the profit? Often not reported. A global profit is reported, a global revenue is reported, but not a breakdown by country, much less by investment. Um, so I feel like fairly confident, given the number of trouble transactions we have and the number of Chinese investments, which exceeds 1,500 at our scale, that the majority are profitable. I cannot tell you, give you a sense of aggregate profit. On the construction side, I'd be shocked if, if, if those, any of those transactions turned money over for China. Now, the profit may be absorbed by the financing rather than the SOE, but somebody's losing money. They constantly underbid everyone else. And there are a lot of projects where they try to raise the price after they win the bid and then they have to negotiate with local government and so on. So when you ask me investment, I would say I don't – I can give you a percentage. It's misleading because I don't know the volumes of the profit on the profit side of the entry and the loss side of the entry. But the majority of Chinese investments are profitable. The majority of Chinese construction projects certainly are not profitable. Very few of them are profitable. Now – I 75% agree with you because I spent a lot of my time talking to the State Department saying, when you say the U.S. is losing Africa to China, what are we losing exactly? <laughs> China has a much stronger needs for commodity extraction from Africa, from Brazil, from Australia, you name it, than we do. Now we have very little commodity dependence on the rest of the world because of shale. I don't know how long that will last, but certainly for the, for the last few years and for the next five or ten, the Chinese need not just energy more than we do. They also need metals more than we do. They need food much more than we do. So, of course, they're going to be more involved in these countries than we are. They have much greater economic interests. We, why should we care? So for the majority of Chinese transactions, the large majority of Chinese transactions, maybe more than 75%, I have the same attitude you are. Some of them are profitable. The construction side is not. It, we shouldn't be – this is not a concern. Uh, one of my friends runs a major U.S. organization in, within the government that is getting funded to you know, compete with China. I'm like, for what? What are we competing with them for? <laughs> now, when it comes to advanced technology, that's a different story. Um, so, as I said, less than 5% of Chinese investment by value is in what I would call technology, and advanced technology would be lower than that. I'm referring to a small subset of total Chinese transactions, but those I would not allow. Um, and I would not allow them in rather definitive fashion. So maybe I agree with you even more than 75%, um, but that, that remaining 10% or whatever it is, that's where I would take, I would not permit Chinese investments in the United States or its allies. And, you know, the obvious example here is, is the endless discussion of Huawei. It's wildly overrated. 
Um, but I am on the record at, a, at an AEI event, I think six years ago, saying Huawei is not private because there are no large private Chinese telecom companies. And that's the attitude I've had from the beginning. And therefore, a Chinese entity should not be building the telecom networks of U.S. allies. So I don't want to talk about it endlessly. I don't want you know, bill after bill passed in Congress that don't just do exactly the same thing. But that's an example where I would restrict Chinese activity, even while saying, why are we worried about Chinese activity in Africa? We're, we shouldn't be competing with them. And oftentimes, as I said during the talk, they're the only ones to build these assets. Sorry. Go ahead. Well, on the other hand, So to some extent, we're thinking about these uh, infrastructure investments in the short term. But in reality, they're long-term investments, which even though they're not necessarily profitable at this point, if they have access to the Indian Ocean through Pakistan, they can completely bypass India. Well, Pakistan and India are close to a nuclear confrontation over Kashmir. China is perfectly They own Piraeus. They have the largest container vessels in the world. They're 1,200 feet long. They contain so many containers in one ship that it completely blows anything that Europe can possibly produce. So the thing is that I think it's dangerous to assume that China is underestimating their capacity I'm sure that they are completely in control of what their plans are, even though we may not know what they are. Well, uh, first of all, this is a this is a backhanded compliment, but it's intended in good humor. You should really work for the Congress, because I, I hear that those kind of arguments a lot on the Hill. I'm not a politics person. I'm not a military person. Um, the economic returns to this investment are not very good overall. Certainly, on the on in, with regard to the BRI. Uh, I agree completely, and we've seen this really since 2006. The Chinese are trying to improve their access to commodities, both by owning assets locally, which they call leasing and business services, because um, you, you know there is some question about how strong foreign ownership can be unless you back it up by military force, um, and by improving their their the you know continental and maritime routes. So Malaysia, the big fuss over the 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 East Coast Railway, that was a way for the Chinese to, to bring Malaysia closer to them and farther away from Japan. And of course, the energy passes through the Straits of Malacca heading towards Northeast Asia. So I understand that there are strategic goals here um, and that the Chinese are pursuing them in some cases. Uh, the, the BRI is not, to me, you know, if the BRI were strategic, it would be 12 countries, not 120. Most of these countries have no strategic value. So then you have to tell a story that they're masking their strategic intent. Well, they are to some extent, but really I think it's a diplomatic initiative to make China more popular in the world because a Chinese 
don't like it when the world, the U.S. seems to be organizing the world against them. They want to be able to organize the world on these symbolic issues against the United States. Are there some countries where there are there is a strategic value to Chinese investment in construction? Absolutely. Um, Djibouti comes to mind uh, for me. People would say Sri Lanka. I, I think that's just a sinkhole and it will be seen, seen as a little Venezuela in about five years in terms of loss of Chinese money. But mostly, you know, I'm reacting to the economics of this. If you want to tell a story that in the future um, these things will become important, <clears throat> maybe. Um, but I heard that story about rare earths, and I heard that story about competitive oil supply. And as you said, uh, there is an India problem. The Indians are paranoid about the BRI. Um, that's not our problem. That's India's problem. And India is not an ally of the United States. And as a trade partner, it's not even a particularly good trade partner of the United States. So there are countries that have to, have to wonder about Chinese activity in their neighborhoods. That doesn't make it automatically an issue for the, for, for the U.S. to be involved in. So I'm not sure. We, we, dis we might disagree something on substance. Again, going back to the previous point, I want a clear U.S. national security interest to be involved before I invoke the we have to compete with China um, mantra. And now unwinding it. And, and then following that up, mm -hmm. the fact that the CEO uh, of HNA was smartered uh, <laughs> by virtue of knowing too much going on in Deutsche Bank. So I'm wondering who, who benefited by, by that murder more? Europeans or <laughs> Oh, that is a provocative question. Um, yes, I, I did think that his falling off that wall was a little convenient with regard to timing. Uh, H&A is now unwinding its stake in Deutsche Bank through it through the whatever QVC or whatever that investment vehicle is. There are too many of these investment vehicles if you can remember them all now. Uh, but if you don't, if you look at the documents, you don't see an H&A stake. You see it through a vehicle. H&A um, overextended. I have no idea what they were doing. Uh, really, nearly don't understand. Uh, there was some cover for movement of personal wealth out of China, but they went well beyond that. Um, in, in both, certainly, let's take the Anbang case. The Anbang case is purely, I mean, that's just outright corruption um, by party members. Um, I don't know what was going on with HNA. It could have been that, except that they were much bigger than Anbang. So, like, how much, you know, how much money did they think they were going to get away with sending out of the country? It's almost as if they they had this business model and they just couldn't help themselves. You know, uh, they were able to make the transactions and so they engaged in them. Um, I, you know, HNA was, it, it, you know, it. Is it private by American standards? No, but it's private by Chinese standards. It's a, it, it was a private entity with an extremely opaque ownership structure. That's not money lost to the Chinese government. Now, there is some risk to s some Chinese financials behind it, and that's why they're being forced to liquidate. I don't think the Chinese are upset at the loss of that position in Deutsche Bank. I don't think it was going to do much for them anyway. They only had it for a little bit of time. Deutsche Bank needs money, so I think they're upset. Um, you know, that's... I hear this from the Canadians. I used to hear from the Australians more than I do now. There are countries, including rich countries, that are that feel short of capital. There are certainly major corporate entities and, and financial institutions that feel short of capital, and that's what Deutsche Bank's takeaway from uh, from this is, which is we need money, and that's they're looking around for a replacement investor. So I think they feel like they lost more. Now Europe, um, I think the Germans. 
from a lot of talking to them, are more upset about KUKA than they are about Deutsche Bank. In other words, they see to, you know, Made in China 2025, which is just the latest version of Chinese industrial policy. It's not like they never had one before, as being aimed at German advanced manufacturing. And they're not worried about the financing behind it. The Chinese can finance whatever they need to finance. So they're more worried about small companies that the Chinese bought that they weren't even paying attention to, perhaps a couple large companies. And Deutsche Bank, I, I don't think it's a big European concern. The main, the main loser in all this, besides the dead guy, uh, are Deutsche Bank shareholders. Behind you? Yeah, coming down this. Yes. Yeah, uh, thanks. Um, do you have any insight by these, these big investments in rich countries? Are these control investments, uh, minority strategic investments, or portfolio investments? And to the extent there's control, do you see the uh, SOEs or private companies sending management in, trying to I mean, how much connectivity is there between the Chinese parent and these, uh, these new subsidiaries? So we have a, a column for percentage ownership. Um, and you have a, a kind of pretty clear split between 100% control and like 10%. And the Chinese really like 9.9% because it changes disclosure. So you'll see a bunch of 10% because I'm not writing 9.9% down in the Excel file as if we're that precise. We're not. Um, you'll see a bunch of 10% and they're all a little bit below 10% so they don't have to disclose. And that, ha that has to do with very large entities. It has to do with sensitive sectors where they say, oh, we're just a passive investor. Don't, no problem here. And then you have some outright acquisitions. You don't have that much in between. Um, they prefer, even when they start with majority control, they try to move to full ownership fairly quickly. So there's a spread, but the spread isn't uniform. It's concentrated in the 100% range, the 51% range, and the 10% range. But you can do your own. Th that's my general impression. There are too many transactions now for me to tell you what the numbers are in the U.S. in particular. Um, you know... SOEs, with a few conspicuous exceptions in Europe, don't tend to take majority stakes. Uh, I can see, I see China Investment Corporation is an SOE, the safe state of mission of foreign exchange, its various arms are SOEs. They buy strategic stakes. They buy 2% of the, you know, an Italian bank and so on. There's very little exchange of, of personnel um, there are ways to store Chinese foreign exchange that aren't U.S. that aren't uh, U.S. Treasuries. Um, the the conventional SOEs they've made a couple major purchases in Europe. Private investment in the U.S. Chinese private firms clearly outpace SOEs. I don't see that much of of uh, of SOEs taking stakes whereby they then. Um, you know, integrate the firms, try to make uh, the, the target firm a subsidiary. Private Chinese firms, um, the goal is always to make it a subsidiary. And the procedure varies a lot. And it has to do with the experience of the investor. Private Chinese firms that have made previous investments move very quickly to trying to integrate the firm. The new ones say, you know, they, the standard corporate promises, we're not changing anything. This person will still stay in charge. We're not going to move any facilities. Exactly what you'd expect from a newbie investor. As the, for the private Chinese firms that have, have been more experienced, they do try to integrate um, uh, the, the, the acquired uh, entity into their structure. Um, so I have, you know, that's a, I don't, I don't have a blanket answer to your question. And again, SOEs dominate in less developed economies, but 
there's less investment there um, and it's more greenfield. So there's not so much question of corporate integration in those cases here. Yeah, coming this, yes. Just be as brief as possible. Oh, we we're running out of time. time. I'm sorry. Please oh, be one brief. One just one question. No, we're not going to stay until six. <laughs> so, yeah. So, just one, one question. Is the Chinese subsidization, subsidization of uh, production, uh, which translates into uh, global and U.S. exports, uh, would you say it's a problem? And can it be better dealt with through an appeal to the WTO than through uh, Mr. Trump's tariffs? Okay, new, so so that's, I mean, I work in that area because I work with USTR. Um, yes, I do think Chinese subsidies are a problem. I don't think they're a problem on the export side. Uh, as is said by economists all the time, if somebody wants to send us subsidized cheap stuff, that's fine. The problem is that Chinese subsidies also inhibit market access for imports into the country, and in particular, regulatory subsidies. There are roughly, I wrote a paper that was used by the Chinese government. Uh, they did not pay me, just to make that clear. <laughs> um, there are roughly two dozen sectors where SOEs are not allowed to lose, which means it doesn't matter how competitive you are in those areas. You're not going to be able to take significant market share away from SOEs. So I consider Chinese subsidies a very big problem. It's on the import side. It's on our exporting or other countries exporting to China, not on China's exports to the United States. Uh, no, I do not agree with the Trump administration's approach. I'll put this very succinctly because I want to get to the last question before we go, which is um, I wanted them to target individual Chinese firms that have either received heavy subsidies, for example, or engaged in bad practices uh, on IP. Across the board, tariffs don't do that. They publish both the guilty and the innocent. I spent about 25 years talking to Chinese firms. I think I can say this with some confidence. If you haven't stolen any IP or received any stolen IP and you're getting the tariff, facing the tariff anyway, why wouldn't you start stealing? Right? I mean, you aren't doing anything wrong. You're getting punished. So the president has chosen a politically expedient because tariffs are simple to argue for. They may not be correct, but they're simple to argue for. Uh, reaction to Chinese subsidies instead of the targeted approach that, in fact, would be more effective, but isn't very easy to explain politically. Yes, please. <clears throat> yes. <clears throat> No, what I said, sorry if I was talking too fast, at the peak of Chinese investment in the U.S., which is 2016, it was equivalent to 0.3% of U.S. GDP. Yes. Especially what? Well, I mean, there are two different ways a trade war could go. If we have long-term U.S. tariffs, there's a very simple phenomenon in international economics called tariff jumping investment, which is if you can't ship as easily to the, to the target market, you invest in the target market and produce there. So that's one simple economic effect. Um, going against that is we have, we're in a period of uncertainty in U.S. policymaking more broadly. It's not just Trump. Let me remind everyone that all four of the last four candidates, Republican and Democrat, when they were running for president as the last four candidates opposed the TPP. Clinton, Sanders, Trump, Cruz, all opposed the TPP. So whether we're in a transition to greater US protectionism creates an uncertainty which inhibits economic transactions of all kinds. Um, my possibly, not possibly, likely overstated claim here 
is that Chinese globalization has peaked, which means I don't expect to return to the peak of 2016 of Chinese investment in the U.S. I think we're going to go back to about 2012, 2013, where we get $15 billion a year of Chinese investment in the U.S., not 50. Um, $15 billion sounds like a lot. In the American economy, it's nothing. It's an afterthought. So it will become a non-controversial issue because it will be too small. Um, that's my expectation. And that could be true because of bilateral relations, the uncertainty created by this changing U.S. political environment, or it could be true by, by my identification of, of the change, the China-generated change in its own globalization patterns. Both of them lead to the same outcome of, you know, it's, it's more than $10 billion. It's not nothing, but, but we've already passed the, the, the prime period for Chinese investment in the United States. With that, I would like to thank Derek. This has been a, um, you know a lot about a lot of different things. I learned a ton myself, and I consider myself a specialist on this issue. So thank you so much um, to all of you. We'll see you April 4th for Adam Stiebel. Thank you.